Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your glorious and awesome word and ask that you would teach us this day. Give us ears to hear, hearts to believe. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus said, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. So we ought not be surprised when we see Satan's tactics at work in our world. The distinctive marks of destruction, of lying and stealing and killing and destroying are evident. We, we live in a fallen world. And amidst all of our culture's pride in being civilized and sophisticated... How can we not see the emptiness and the horror that's present in a culture today which glamorizes death? For example, since the Roe v. Wade decision some 40 plus years ago, there have been nearly 60 million abortions in the United States. Just for comparison's sake, just so we get sometimes these big numbers, we don't have place for comparison. Just for comparison's sake, the Holocaust affected the death of nearly 6 million Jews. So over these last 40 years, we've killed 60 million babies. How can society today rightly shame and condemn Hitler and all those who participated in the Holocaust for their horrendous actions while simultaneously assenting to and giving hearty agreement to the massacre of so many babies? Euthanasia is just another example of this. The, the word literally means good death. But here is a case of a complete misnomer. It's not a good death at all. At least three justifications are offered by those who advocate euthanasia, active euthanasia today. First of all, that choice is king. You know, everyone should have a choice. The American way of things, right? It's claimed that this is a fundamental principle governing the world. Secondly, quality of life. That both physical and emotional pains make one's quality of life so poor that death is a better option. By the way, this is a lie too, especially for those who are non-Christians. For no matter what pain or suffering they're experiencing now, if they don't know Jesus and they die, they're going to a much worse place. A place of eternal torment. A third reason that's given is economic cost. Because it costs too much keeping, especially the elderly alive. And that these resources would be better spent on others who have better chances. Um, especially younger people who have more years ahead of them and have more potential for quote-unquote benefiting society. This always raises another question. Um, how is that benefit determined exactly? And who gets to determine 
who is most beneficial to society. Those who argue against active euthanasia argue, at least among things, these, these things, first of all, that it's immoral, that active euthanasia is just suicide or murder. Uh, theologically, active euthanasia is an, a violation of the sanctity of human life. Life is God's, and therefore we're not the ones to make the decision as to when life ends. Uh, medically, how do you, do you um, prevent improper motivations from guiding medical practices? Economically, who can put a price on human life? How many dollars would you put on your spouse right now? On your child? On your parent? Who can put a price on that? It's interesting to note that the original Hippocratic Oath included the following statement. This is what it originally said. I will prescribe regimens. So every doctor would say this, right? The Hippocratic Oath. Many don't say it anymore. And I'll show you why in a minute. But I will prescribe regimens for the good of my patients according to my ability and my judgment and never do harm to anyone. Next line. I will not give a lethal drug to anyone if I am asked, nor will I advise such a plan. And similarly, I will not give a woman a pessary to cause an abortion, which is a device that they used then to try to abort a baby. If I keep the oath faithfully, may I enjoy my life and practice my art, respected by all men in all, in all times. But if I swerve from it or violate it, may the reverse be my lot. Isn't it interesting that within the original Hippocratic Oath, there were statements against euthanasia or assisted suicide as well as abortion. And the doctors would swear, saying, if I swerve from this, may people think I'm a horrible person. <laughs> For I am, and if I, if I keep to it, may they you know, respect me. Well, a uh, failure to abide by this prohibition uh, causes a big problem within our culture today. And so it was around the 1970s that in American medical schools, cultural and social forces supposedly, in an effort to legitimize abortion, induced many American medical schools to abandon the Hippocratic Oath as part of their graduation ceremonies, usually substituting their own version, modified in some way to bring it up, quote, quote, to being politically up-to-date with our, you know, present sophistication. Or they would give an alternate pledge, or they do none at all. You see, we really do live in a culture of death. And it's the oddest thing to behold. The modern man is in a love affair with death. All about us is this morbid interest in death and killing. And the one sort of killing, capital punishment, that the Bible actually calls for, because it's an act of judgment upon those who shed blood... It, which actually is upholding the sanctity of life, right? The idea is you took a man's life, so now your life will be taken. The idea of capital punishment is to uphold the sanctity of life. So that way it will be a warning to anyone. Should you take a man's life, your life will be taken. But this is the one thing that's vehemently frowned upon by many today. Go figure. Perhaps it's just a further manifestation of the same love affair. We love the mass murderer so much that we can't end his life. He's living the dream. But among recent news stories, none has taken center stage like the Supreme Court decision a couple of weeks ago that states that states, that states cannot keep same-sex couples from marrying and must recognize their union should they have been married in a state that already allowed for this to happen. President Obama said that the ruling is, quote, a victory for America, end quote, and that it will, quote, strengthen all of our communities by offering dignity and equal status to all same-sex couples and their families. 
But Obergefell versus Hodges, as the case will now be remembered, this will be one of those that's remembered like Roe v. Wade for sure, is just another expression of our glamorization of death. For think about it just logically with me for a moment. If homosexuality is taken to its logical end, it would mean the total annihilation of the human race, even within a generation. That's all it would take. It's odd I guess with no other intervention, right? We would just all die off. There'd be no more babies. It's odd that the liberal agenda, which advocates abortion, homosexuality, euthanasia, really can only survive so long as the biblical stand survives. Think about that for just a moment. If their stand was all that existed, we would not exist. If we all believed as they're advocating, we would not be here. You know, those who dissent against biblical morality only have a voice because, number one, they were born as a result of a male and female coming together in some way, shape, or fashion. Number two, they were not aborted. And number three, they haven't been euthanized yet. Right? That's the only way they can even say anything, even have a dissenting opinion. Instead of being mad at us, they should be thankful for us. Or they wouldn't even be here to even offer their dissenting opinion if their opinion ruled the day. Our own Supreme Court justices are speaking of the dreadful impacts this decision will have. I find this really interesting. This isn't even coming, this isn't coming from pastors or, you know, so-called prophets in our day. The four justices that voted against this decision, they lost four to five. So the four that were against this decision have declared that this decision marks the decline and fall of traditional American social, political, and legal order. Four of the nine Supreme Court justices are saying that this decision marks the fall and decline of traditional American social, political, and legal order. The justices warn, these justices warn, the decision will, quote, have unavoidable and wide-ranging implications for religious liberty, end quote. Chief Justice John Roberts, who is among the dissenters, he's one of the four that was against the decision, said in his dissenting statement, by the way, all four dissenting judges all made a statement. Sometimes, like, they'll elect one person to make a statement. All four of them who were against it made statements. Chief Justice John Roberts said this. From the dawn of human history, marriage was defined as between a man and a woman. But today, five lawyers have redefined marriage. Just who do we think we are? I have no choice but to dissent. He also states... Hard questions arise when people of faith exercise religion in ways that may be seen to conflict with the new right to same-sex marriage. When, for example, a religious college provides married student housing only to opposite-sex married couples. Or a religious adoption agency declines to place children into same-sex married couple families. Indeed, the Solicitor General candidly acknowledged that the tax exemptions of some religious institutions would be in question if they opposed same-sex marriage. There is little doubt that these and similar questions will soon be before this court. Unfortunately, people of faith can take no comfort in the treatment they receive from the majority today. He continues, perhaps the most discouraging aspect of today's decision is the extent to which the majority feels compelled to sully those on the other side of the debate. The majority offers a cursory assurance that does not intend to disparage people who, as a matter of conscience, cannot accept same-sex marriage. That disclaimer is hard to square with the very next sentence, 
in which the majority explains that, quote, the necessary consequence of laws codifying the traditional definition of marriage is to, quote, demean or stigmatize same-sex couples. The majority reiterates such characterizations over and over. By the majority's account, Americans who did nothing more than follow the understanding of marriage that has existed for our entire history, in particular the tens of millions of people who voted to reaffirm their state's enduring definition of marriage, have acted to, quote, lock out, disparage, disrespect, and subordinate and inflict dignitary wounds upon the gay and lesbian neighbors. These apparent assaults on the character of fair-minded people will have an effect in society and in court. Moreover, they are entirely gratuitous, It is one thing for the majority to conclude the Constitution protects a right to same-sex marriage. It's something else to portray everyone who does not share the majority's better-informed understanding as bigoted. Justice Samuel Alito, also a dissenting vote, warns that Obergefell will be used to vilify Americans who are unwilling to assent to the new orthodoxy. And it'll be used to oppress the faithful, quote, by those who are determined to stamp out every vestige of dissent. I assume that those who cling to old beliefs will be able to whisper their thoughts in the recesses of their homes. But if they repeat those views in public, they'll risk being labeled as bigots and treated as such by governments, employers, and schools. I find these statements so incredible. These are four of the Supreme Court justices saying this. This is not just our ideas about what might happen. These are four Supreme Court justices saying the implications of this decision will have these sorts of consequences. It's only a matter of time. The day looks so bleak, doesn't it? What are we to do? Do we start a political lobby? Should we move to another country? Should we build our own safe haven away from all of this? I believe the scriptures provide a consistent message regarding the role of Christians in the world. And while there might be some variation in the specific roles that each of us take regarding certain social issues, for none of us can have the ultimate solution to any of these, there is one task which we are to carry forward that will have the most needed impact on our country. And it's summed up with this statement. Sharing a message of repentance for forgiveness. Sharing a message of repentance for forgiveness. In other words, what the world needs most is the gospel. And it's ironic that it's that very message that the world works so hard to silence. The thing they don't want to hear is the thing they actually need. Yet our role as Christ's ambassadors is to herald this message here and abroad... Truth be told, we broadcast this message 24-7 with everything we think, with everything we do, with everything we love. So I want to consider how we serve as witnesses of the gospel through our heads, through our hands, and through our hearts today. How do we serve as ambassadors of the gospel, giving this world what it really needs through our heads, through our hands, and through our hearts? We do this through what we know. What's in our heads, our thoughts, what we do, our hands, our actions, and what we enjoy, our hearts. What is it that we love? Point number one, what we know. The importance of our heads. The importance of our thoughts. And this starts with, I want to just speak to this as a couple of, there might be more that we could speak to this, but at least two gifts that God gives in order for our heads, our thoughts to have anything useful to share with this world and 
anything useful for us to have. The first is the gift of revelation. The gift of revelation. Now certainly the, the traditional big systematic theology categories for this are general revelation and special revelation. I want to talk to both those quickly. General revelation is just the notion that God has revealed much to us just by the sheer fact of having created us and the world that we live in. And he's granted us senses by which we can observe and take in information from the environment around us. And he's given us a brain with which we can reason and a conscience with which we have an idea of right and wrong. Even if we disagree about what is right and wrong. Isn't it interesting? Again, even in this discussion, in this debate, homosexual debate, no one's debating if there's unrighteousness. So much so that man has to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Mankind can know that God exists, even perceive his invisible attributes, through merely observing what God has created. We can see his power every time the sun comes up. And his regularity tells us something about God's order. We can look up and see the stars and how they, they are all there in their place. We can see the incredible design that God had for animals and how he made the human body. We see his power. We see his creativity. We see his order. We see his control. We see his goodness. We see his justice. But then to all of this gift, God has super added the gift of special revelation. The gift of special revelation. God rose up leaders like Moses and David. He rose up prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah. He rose up apostles like Peter and Paul. And he granted them special revelation regarding himself to be shared with others. God performed miraculous acts, both in the Old and New Testaments, to verify the authenticity of what was being said. And he provided prophecy and the fulfillment of prophecy to further buttress the truth that he is God. And he's in control of everything. God then gave us the most blessed special revelation, his own son, Jesus Christ, who is, in the words of Colossians, the image of the invisible God. John 1.14 explains, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We have the blessing of the Bible, a canon of 66 books, which each individually contribute to our knowledge of God and ourselves and the world that he's made, as well as collaboratively telling us one big story of, as James Hamilton would say it, of God's glory in salvation through judgment. So as we turn here to Luke 24, verse 44, we read this from Jesus. Jesus said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. That all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now note, Jesus here divides up the Old Testament into its traditional divisions. He says here, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. Hebrew Bible is split into three sections. The Torah, or the law. The Nebim, which is the the prophets. And the Kethubim, which is the, the writings. The Psalms being such a big portion of the writings, often the Psalms was used to stand in the place of all of the writings. Here Jesus says, You've heard these words of mine, that everything that has been written about me throughout all of the scriptures must be fulfilled. 
Jesus did not come to erase the scriptures or to nullify them. He came to perfectly fulfill them. He, as the Christ, he, as the Messiah, fulfilled every stroke of the law. He lived a perfectly obedient life. He also fulfilled all of the ceremonial requirements, even offering himself up as the perfect sacrifice to take away sin, removing the curse of the law that stood over us who trust in him. He also fulfilled every prophetic word made about the coming Messiah. All the prophets, all of it fulfilled in Jesus. And Jesus' greatness and goodness required not only narrative and prophetic statements, but poetry, the writings, the psalms. There's something about Jesus' beauty that just can't be gotten at through narrative. There's prose and poetry. There's beautiful statements made to try to get even a little bit closer to describing just how beautiful Jesus is. Every bit of hope seen in every psalm, every longing for a rescuer is completely fulfilled in Jesus Christ and in no one else. All parts of the Bible serve to point us to God's Son, Jesus These all, Jesus said, must be fulfilled for there to be any hope for us as sinners. There's no hope for us otherwise. To redeem us, all the prophecies, all the law, all the psalms must be fulfilled. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, don't you see? This is what I've been talking about all this time. Everything I've ever taught you has played out precisely as I said it would. But even with all this revelation staring them in the face, the disciples could be Quite dense. And so can we be quite dense. So alongside of this gift of revelation, God also provides a second gift I want to mention is the gift of understanding. The gift of understanding. Look at Luke 24, 45. And he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures. This progression seems very similar to the experience of the disciples who walked with Jesus on the road to Emmaus. They didn't know it was Jesus at first, remember? He was walking with him. If you don't remember, just look over on the other, probably the other side of your Bible there. It's just earlier in the same chapter. Luke 24, 25 through 27 is a good place to, to read a little bit. He says to them, these two guys, oh, foolish men, slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken. Was it not, you see it again, necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. But it wouldn't be until Jesus then is blessing bread, breaking it, and giving it to the men that suddenly, we read in verse 31, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Jesus had given all this explanation, but it's at that moment that the light bulb comes on. Eureka! Here it is. There's understanding now. You see, Jesus had given repeated explanations regarding his mission. He had already explained why he had come. He had explained that his meeting with death was not an impediment to his mission, but was his mission, just as was foretold. All that had been written about the Christ must be fulfilled, including that Christ would suffer, verse 46, that Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day. And here is the aha moment. This is the moment that anyone who's ever taught, who finds any joy in teaching, looks forward to this moment. 
when the light bulb comes on, when there's all this preparation that went on before this moment, but now the connection happens. So often, our desire to shortcut that process leads to a lack of comprehension and appreciation for what is being learned. I was talking with even Seth this last week. He spoke about reading a, a murder mystery novel with some students here at Orca, and one of the students read the end of the story. It was an Agatha Christie novel. Read the end of it, and then told a couple of friends in the class who did it. He's like, that should be abhorrent, you know, morally reprehensible to read the end of the book and then tell other people what happened, right? This is why when somebody starts talking about a movie, we close our ears. I don't want to know. I don't want Don't tell me. Don't give. No spoilers. No spoilers. We don't like to be told the end before it's time. But even for those of you who do like to go to the last page of the book and read the last page, shame on you, um, if you like to do that, you would also still admit, why do you still then read the book? Because you don't understand the ending apart from its context, Right? You might know where the story's going, but you still won't appreciate the ending. You won't understand the ending apart from all that went before it. Today, too often, we remove this joy of learning through cut-to-the-chase cliff note versions. But most stories lose their beauty when they're boiled down to a few bullet points. Now, obviously, I'm engaged in preaching right now, a pretty sturdy outline points up here behind me. I'm not saying that making points and having outlines and for all those engineers in the room, having an organized approach to things, that's not a bad thing. That's good. We need organization as we mull through things and consider things and categorize things. However, to skip the story and to trade it in for talking points is to lose the story. Oftentimes it's the details that we, through the details that we come to appreciate the whole A story's twists and turns draw us in. They create in us a sense of longing. They heighten our sense of need. They bring us to a note of anticipation and hope. For which the ending then, if it's done right, brings it all together. It resolves the tensions. It ushers in delight and a perspective which now is utilized to reflect back on everything else in the story. Ah, so it wasn't such a bad deal that that happened there because it led to this. Often the most glorious ends come through most difficult trials. And there is no story that comes close to comparing to the story of the Bible, the story of redemption, the story of Jesus. Here is the ultimate story of longing and anticipation and foreshadowing of supposed failure that's then swallowed up in victory. The story of happy beginnings, quickly followed by tragic loss, many trials and tribulations, yet ultimately ending in supreme joy and supreme gladness. But sometimes understanding of this story only comes through a journey, after a journey. And so it was for the disciples. We had read earlier today in John 12, these things his disciples did not understand at first. This was at the triumphal entry. These things his disciples didn't understand at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. It's probably at a moment like this where the light bulb clicks. Ah! And there's understanding. Jesus had spoken these words to his disciples throughout his ministry. They were the echo and fulfillment of what the Old Testament spoke to. But these things, that these things written about Jesus must be fulfilled. And now Jesus opens their minds to understand the scriptures. 
Now, please understand this. Does that mean that someone who's not a Christian can't read the Bible? No, they can read the Bible. Can they connect facts and details and points of chronology? Absolutely, they can do all that. The disciples were doing all that too. They knew the Bible in that sense. This understanding is being spoken to is a much deeper thing. Something that only the Spirit can bring about. That I get it. I really got it. And I love Jesus. And I want him. And I long for him. Certainly any man can read the Bible and learn a few things. But it's a spiritual understanding that's given by the Lord. 1 Corinthians 2.14 A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. So a couple of weeks ago, I had the joy of watching my son be granted this understanding. Hear him not only share facts of the gospel as someone would having memorized them, but having a personal apprehension of those truths and a, and a clinging to Jesus. Uh, I'll always remember him praying. I was not leading his prayer. Joel, if you need to talk to the Lord, talk to the Lord. And to hear him express that he needed God to change his heart and that what he needed, all that he needed, Jesus had done for him was just so precious to me. Such joy. Not because I'm glorying in my son, but in my God, who saw fit to save him. My son not deserving or worthy of the Lord's favor any more than I am, but that granting of understanding. God grants revelation, and he grants understanding. And this knowledge is crucial to our role as witnesses for Jesus. But it does lead us to ask, what do we do with it? You know, what do we now do with that? We've been given this revelation. We've been given this understanding. It's, only, it's not only important what we know, but it's also, point number two, important what we do. What we do, the importance of our hands, of our actions. And maybe summarize this in a couple of further subpoints. We communicate a message of hope. We communicate a message of hope. Verse 48 says, you are witnesses of these things. So Jesus tells his disciples, you are the ones granted the incredible privilege of have been, having been eyewitnesses to all these events as they unfolded. You know that I suffered and rose again on the third day, just as was foretold. John emphasizes his own role as an eyewitness in 1 John 1. We had this read this morning also. where He says, listen to how many times he describes this eyewitness element to his testimony. He says, well, it was from the beginning what we heard, what we've seen with our eyes, what we've looked at, what we've touched with our hands concerning the word of life. This life was manifested and we've seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and manifested to us. Again, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. He says, we saw this. We touched him. We heard him. We proclaimed to you that which we saw and touched and heard, that our joy might be full in having you hear about him. For while we today might not be eyewitnesses of those events, we are nonetheless witnesses of those events. 
Being a witness of these events meant also, Jesus explained to them, the accompanying privilege of being part of the rest of the fulfillment, that repentance for, fulfill, for forgiveness of sin would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. The proclamation, note this, was about repentance for forgiveness of sin in his name, in the name of Jesus. This is a really great summary statement about what the gospel is. The message is a message of repentance for forgiveness of sin in the name of Jesus. Let's break that down for a moment. Note that the message we proclaim necessarily involves sin. We cannot avoid the subject of sin if we're going to preach the gospel. Say it again. We cannot avoid the subject of sin if we're going to preach the gospel. If you're going to share the good news with someone, you must share the bad news in order for them to appreciate and understand the good news. The good news only makes sense in light of the bad news. Remove the reality of sin, and there's no need for a savior. Right? If there is no sin, if none of us are sinners, then why all that? So we proclaim a message for this very reason. We proclaim a message that is hated by this world because this world wants to be called righteous while it is unrighteous. This world is insulted that behaviors that they engage in could be described as sinful. And this is considered an offense to them. By the way, the only difference there is that, you know, it's not like it's we Christians never sin, but we're not offended when it's called sin. We repent. <laughs> We ask the Lord for ongoing forgiveness and grace. Yet, you see, by rejecting the reality of their sin, which, by the way, they all know they are, for the, even the laws are written on their hearts. They, they know that they're sinners. Their conscience, they, they know it. They do it with knowledge, right? Conscience with knowledge. They, they, they do these things with knowledge. But they push it down. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They're not ultimately here fooling God. And there's coming a day in which everyone will be set before the perfect judgment seat of God. And there will be no excuses that will save you on that day. You see, we're all born spiritually dead. We're all born guilty before God. We're all sinners. And left to ourselves, there would be only judgment and condemnation. So, we can thank the Lord... For exposing our sin by the law. Galatians says the law is a tutor to bring us to Christ. Highlights our sinfulness. One of the big reasons why Ray Comfort uses the Ten Commandments to expose a person to their sin before sharing them the good news of Jesus, right? Just talk to them about and saying God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Believe in Jesus. Well, if they don't even admit that they're a sinner, they're not looking for a savior. And that doesn't even make sense. As he says as a rule of thumb, you know, grace to the broken heart, but law to the hardened heart. Let the law break up the hardened heart. Ask the Holy Spirit to break the hardened heart. So we thank the Lord for exposing sin by the law. It's a message that we have to proclaim involves sin. But the rest of the message we proclaim is repentance for forgiveness of sin. Repentance for forgiveness of sin. In other words, we have a message which tells sinners, yes, you are sinners. But if you repent and trust in Christ, you can have your sins forgiven. Right? Yes, you are a sinner. But here's the good news. Any sinner who repents and trusts in Jesus has their sins forgiven. 
You can be washed clean. You can be cleansed. Though your sins are as scarlet, you may be made white as snow. Note that this repentance for forgiveness is also mentioned here in his name, in Jesus' name. There's no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. Again, crucial point of the gospel, right? It's not enough just that they go, yeah, I'm a sinner. And it's not enough that they're like, yeah, I'm going to repent. I'm going to you know, turn a new leaf. <laughs> and I'm going to trust in Buddha. No, Buddha won't save you. He's not able to save you. There's only one name under heaven by which men can be saved. Jesus alone is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. And we're told that this proclamation is to go to all the nations. To all the nations. There's the breadth of it. There's the extent. This is the scope of our mission. That this message would go to everyone. But I also love how Jesus appends to that starting in Jerusalem. I think it's a good instruction to us too. That's a huge task. The world. Everyone. Where do I start? Start at home. Start at home. And start with those who are near you. Be purposeful about sharing the truth of the gospel with your family members, with your friends, with neighbors, with co-workers. Start there. By all means, the mission goes further than there, but start there. Start here. And then push forward and outward towards others. The second thing I can say is we carry a God-given promise. We carry a God-given promise. Verse 49, the first part of it says, And behold, I'm sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. This is a really neat way of saying, Jesus is saying, I'm sending the Holy Spirit. Here the Holy Spirit is referred to as the promise of my Father. I'm sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. The promise of the Father. The disciples will not be left alone. They'll be given the come alongside her. They'll be given the paraclete. They'll be given the helper, the comforter, who will always be with them. They will not be alone. Jesus said in John 16, verses 7 and 8, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For I don't go away. The helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, listen, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Again, great reminder, salvation is God's work from beginning to end. The Holy Spirit is necessary for a man to come under true conviction of his sin as an offense before God, and to recognize and admit that he's worthy of an impending judgment. The wages of sin is death. But then also, for his eyes to be opened and his heart to be opened to see the the beauties and glories of Jesus, the one and only Savior. This is why it's so important that before we talk to men about God, we talk to God about men. We pray that God would open their hearts, open their eyes, open their ears, remove the slothfulness, remove the the haze, remove the veil, that they would be granted this understanding that God, by His grace, has given us. Not because, again, we deserve it, but purely undeserved third thing we can say is that we display a heavenly power. Verse 49, second part of it, it says, But you are to stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. God doesn't give us a task that he doesn't then also give us the equipment to fulfill the task. You know, how, how horrible would it be if I told Joel, Hey, here's five nails. Go out into the garage and nail them into a board, but I'm not going to give you a hammer. Figure it out. Well, maybe he'd go find something else to try to accomplish it, right? But what kind of father is that, right? 
We give him the tools that are necessary to complete the task appointed to him. God provides us with the equipment to fulfill the task. On our own, it's hopeless. We're weak and frail. But in our weakness, he is strong. And his strength is a testimony to his greatness. I love the way it's said in Acts 4.13. When the people are observing the courage and the confidence of Peter and John. And they understood that these men were uneducated and untrained men. By the way, this is a great convicting verse for anyone who's ever said, well, I, was, I didn't go to seminary, so how can I preach the gospel to someone else? You know, I've only been a Christian for a few days. How can I share the good news with someone else? Here, these men recognize as uneducated and untrained men, and yet the people around them are amazed. They're amazed. And it says, they began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. That's part of the glory of this. As we act not in our strength but in his, it bears witness to his sufficiency. If you think you can do it on your own, you're in the wrong place. You cannot. It's always you said, oh, I can't do it. You're right, you can't. But he can through you. Matthew 5, 16, let your light so shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. This brings us to our third and final point. It's seen through what we enjoy or what we love. The importance of our hearts. The importance of our hearts. Look at verses 50 through 53. We see a couple of sub-things I could say here. First of all is that we glory in our Redeemer. We glory in our Redeemer. Jesus led them out as far as Bethany. He lifted up his hands and he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem. Jesus, before parting from his disciples, we're told, blesses them. He gives them a parting benediction. Think about in Israel's day, one of those famous, the ironic blessing, but this ongoing statement of blessing before God's people, that God would be good to them and hear them. Here we see Jesus blessing his disciples as he is as he ascends to heaven. I love this statement from J.C. Ryle. We shall never find a heart more tender, more loving, more patient, more compassionate, and more kind than Jesus's. To talk of the Virgin Mary as being more compassionate than Christ is a proof of miserable ignorance. To flee to the saints for comfort when we may flee to Christ is an act of mingled stupidity and blasphemy and a robbery of Christ's crown. Gracious was our Lord Jesus while he lived among his weak disciples, gracious in the very season of his agony on the cross, gracious when he rose again and gathered his scattered sheep around him, gracious in the manner of his departure from the world. It was a departure in the very act of blessing. His point being, there's no one more gracious than Jesus. Sometimes I've heard Roman Catholics describe going to Mary because, you know, Mary's, you know, Jesus' mother. And so if you want to get on good terms with Jesus, you get on good terms with his mother. What, a, what an atrocity. I think Mary herself would recoil at such things being said of her. Run to Jesus. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He is compassionate. He is merciful. 
He is, yes, a righteous judge. But if you will repent and turn to him, he will forgive you. He will bring you into his family. Jesus, having completed the task his father had given to him, was taken up into glory, 1 Timothy 3.16, where he sat down at the right hand of majesty in heaven, Hebrews 1.3. Taken up into glory, seated at the right hand of majesty. And the, appro- the appropriate response to Jesus is what the disciples do. He parted from them, it was carried up in heaven, verse 52, and they, after worshiping him. Remember there's an earlier objection during Jesus' ministry when Jesus declared the paralytic sins forgiven? Remember the religious leaders said, who can forgive sins but God alone? And the, the, the point being here, this is blasphemous, he's claiming to be God. But that's exactly who Jesus was, he was God. And therefore, he is rightly and truly to be worshipped. Jesus could be worshipped here and should be worshipped because he's not only truly and fully man, but he's also truly and fully God. He always has been God. He always will be God. And therefore, the disciples' response to worship him is both appropriate and demanded. The second thing we can see is that we rejoice in our God. We glory in our Redeemer and we rejoice in our God. Verses 52 and 53, and they, after worshipping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And we're continually in the temple praising God. Now for this first time, the disciples really get it. And even though Jesus has ascended to heaven and has departed from them, we don't see them weeping. We see them cheerful. We see them joyous. Because now they have a clear understanding of the gospel. No other response could be possible other than unfettered joy. Riken says, anyone who knows the same Jesus that they knew will have the same joy. And the same longing and the same gratitude. Do these verses describe you? I want to worship Jesus and enjoy him forever. I love this ending to Luke's gospel because I think it describes well the ultimate ending for all of God's people. Worshiping Jesus, being filled with great joy, continually praising God. Isn't that it? Worshiping Jesus, being filled with great joy continually praising God. What a great description. What a great description. You see, what Christians have that no one else does is deep, true, real, sincere, everlasting, overflowing, never-ending, unsurpassable, indescribable joy. And the more you come to understand the gospel, the greater your appreciation of its sweetness. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. It's sweeter as the years go by. The more we come to recognize his greatness and his goodness, the more sweet he is to our taste. The more we're transformed into his likeness, the more we worship him and glorify him and find our joy and happiness in him. You see, the happiness that Satan in this world has to offer is really a cheap counterfeit. Some fleeting feeling followed by, inevitably, regret. And emptiness, it all wears off. It leaves a bad aftertaste. If you're living for the next iPhone, I've got news for you. It's going to break down at some point, and there's going to be a new one that comes out. Whatever passing joy you had at that moment, it will be eclipsed by something else, which will also not totally fulfill you. But those who discover the reason they were created, the reason why they exist, the reason why they were redeemed was to worship the Lord, find true and lasting satisfaction. And being blessed by the Lord, we bless him and praise him forevermore. 
You see, being spent on his glory, being consumed with loving him, rebounds to our good. (laughs) They're worshiping Jesus, and they're filled with great joy. Do you see that? Worshiping Jesus, filled with great joy. Our joy and God's glory are not at odds with one another. It's the very means by which we come to greatest joy, is by glorifying him. See John Piper, all of his works. Even the sufferings and the trials that we encounter in the present world are nothing to be compared with the weight of the glory that is to follow. Acts 1.11 tells us that this Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you watched him go to heaven. He's coming back. King Jesus, risen from the dead, ascended into heaven, is coming back one day. And with every day that passes, we get one day closer to the glorious return of our king. What a day of rejoicing that will be. For all who have loved and longed for his appearing. Rod Dreher, senior editor and blogger at the American Conservative, states in Time magazine, quote, It is hard to overstate the significance of the Obergefell decision and the seriousness of the challenges it presents to Orthodox Christians and other social conservatives. Then he prescribes, We're going to have to learn how to live as exiles in our own country. We're going to have to learn how to live with at least a mild form of persecution. We're going to have to change the way we participate or practice our faith and teach it to our children to build resilient communities. He explains, voting Republican and other failed culture war strategies are not going to save us now. So he advocates a sort of Benedictine monasticism a building of resilient communities within a condition of of internal exile, keeping the light of faith burning so that we can eventually help refound civilization, as he claims the Benedictine monks did after the Middle Ages. Interesting. You see, while I agree with Dreyer's diagnosis that the Obergefell case marks a significant moment in the ongoing decline of American culture, politics, legal order, And that there's going to be coming significant forms of persecution for Christians. Because if we hold to what God says in his word, no matter what men will say, we'll see persecution. I disagree with Dreyer's prescription. What's needed is not monasticism. Some retreat away from culture. As Jesus said, no one lights a lamp and hides it under a bushel basket. But places it on a lampstand for all to see. We've never been promised freedom from persecution. We've enjoyed it for many years, perhaps. At least it's more gross and overt forms. But we've never been promised freedom from persecution. In fact, we're all promised that all who desire to live godly will suffer persecution. So while things seem grim for our country, may I encourage you that the light shines brightest when the night is darkest. The message of hope that we have remains the same. But the true joy and hope that we have to offer will look all the more sweet. For we have a message of life amidst a culture of death. We have a message of life because we know the prince of life, who is life in himself, who died and rose again, that we might have abundant life. And while Satan continues to steal and kill and destroy and propagate his lies... We've been given the glorious privilege of speaking the truth in love. Not merely that homosexuality is sin, 
But that should a homosexual repent and trust in Jesus, they can be forgiven and cleansed and made new. For Jesus died for sinners, whether their sin be of a sexual nature, whether it be heterosexual sin or homosexual sin or other sins. We would do well to remember ourselves and even remind those who are homosexuals that it's not as if heterosexuals are purely straight either. By that I mean all of us have fallen from sexual purity. Who in this room could say they've never lusted in their heart for someone else? Who can claim perfect purity as it relates to sex? All of us need to have our sins forgiven. All of us are crooked in need of grace. But celebrating sin and congratulating those who have given themselves over to various forms of it does not help them. It harms them. It harms them. It's not loving to say it's okay when it's not. Is it okay to say everything's going to be fine when it's not going to be fine if they stay where they are? It doesn't give them dignity. It strips their dignity. Telling an adulterer that he's justified in sleeping around. Telling a man that it's good for him to take ten wives to himself. Telling a sex trafficker that his trade is benefiting society. Or celebrating homosexuality by attempting to redefine marriage on man's terms instead of God's is not an act of love. It's an act of cowardice. It's a propagation of a lie. It's to fail to speak the truth in love. It's to speak words that flatter but don't save. What's needed is what has been always needed. Homosexuality is not a new occurrence Read Genesis, right? This is not a new occurrence. What might be new to our culture is a celebration of it. But it's not a new thing. This is all sin. is not new to fallen man. Can I just respond to Dreyer that what rescued civilization from the dark Middle Ages was not monasteries. It was the gospel. What transformed society was the transformation of individuals as Jesus Christ saved them by the power of the gospel. It's not by celebrating sin that we find joy and happiness. It's by celebrating the Savior. What we're given by him is inexpressibly glorious. We who deserve judgment and eternal damnation have by by grace alone the gift of repentance for forgiveness. It's that message that we now proclaim to others who are presently where we once ourselves were. Right? I sure hope when we share this truth with others that we don't come across on some spiritual high horse. We should say things like, I was once where you are. I too am a sinner, purely and only saved by grace. It's my only hope is what Jesus has done. Listen to how Paul says in Ephesians 2, We too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. We're not in some spiritual high plane from some of our own actions, some position of pompous arrogance, for it's not by our doing that we're changed, but his and his alone. Listen to the next verse. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. You see what a death obsessed world needs is the prince of life. This world of death needs Jesus Christ. 
So we must boldly, courageously proclaim the truth of the gospel in love, through our heads, through our hands, through our hearts, a message of repentance for forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. For apart from Christ, all that remains is a fearful expectation of judgment, of eternal death. But in Christ, through his death and resurrection, you may have life, an abundant, eternal life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your glorious truth. The fact that we who are dead in sins can be made alive. We know that events of our current day are little moments into which we see the, our depravity, the depravity of man. We see the ongoing decline around us. We also at times see your judgment falling upon that. Lord, we're thankful that we have the opportunity to shine as bright lights in the midst of this dark world. Lord, what is needed now more than ever is deeper humility and brokenness in our hearts, a dependence upon you, deep prayerfulness that you would help us to stand firm as ambassadors of yours, that we would bear witness to these truths, and that you would save people for your glory and for your renown. May we uphold what the Bible says about what is sin, that sin is sin, and may that be very clear simultaneously may be also just as clear that we proclaim a savior we proclaim that if men should repent and turn to jesus they can have their sins forgiven pray you do this for your renown and for your kingdom's sake in jesus name amen